Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great business decisions. In each episode, we're discussing the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today we're going to talk about hiring a forensic accountant. And um, forensic accountants are always fun to talk to because in the accounting world, they always have the greatest stories, the greatest war stories. I mean, who doesn't love uh, a story about white-collar crime? Mm -hmm. uh, unless you're in it, I guess. Then it's not so great. But if you're if you're sort of a third third person that makes the great the best cocktail story. So pro tip to the listeners out there: if you're ever sort of at a mixer with a CPA firm and you don't know who to talk to, ask who the forensic accountants are because they have the best stories uh, by none. Um, you know, forensic accounting is a, a, a very specialized area uh, of the accounting profession, and it's one of the most uh, difficult decisions in terms of deciding whether or not you're going to hire a forensic accountant because by definition, uh, when you're considering hiring a forensic accountant, you think that um, potentially there's been at least a major mishap and in many cases you suspect that a crime has been committed often by somebody that you trust and so it's, it, I can tell you from talking to my clients who I've referred to forensic accountants over the years, it's, it's a major hurdle to then make that call to say, yeah, I need to get this checked out. I need to have somebody really come in and look under all the rocks and, and hopefully find nothing. That would be a great outcome. But then if something is going to be found that we know exactly what it is and we can make it from there. And so to, to talk about that with us, is Brady Ware's resident expert. Uh, joining us today by phone from the Gem City, Dayton, Ohio, is Randy Domigan, uh, one of my business partners at Brady Ware in Dayton. Um, Randy works on a variety of accounting, auditing, and consulting engagements, as well as corporate and individual tax areas. He provides services to closely held businesses in a variety of industries, including manufacturing, dealerships, retail, distribution, professional services, transportation, and real estate. He leads our firm's fraud services practice and assists with recruiting and training of new team members and serves as the head of the firm's Assurance Services Group Technology Committee. Randy is a member of the Ohio Society of Certified Public Accountants, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, and the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. He also serves as the chair for the Better Business Bureau's Eclipse Integrity Awards Committee and is active with the Dayton Chamber of Commerce and the Miami Valley Venture Association. Randy is a 1994 graduate of Wright State University. After working three years with another regional accounting firm in Dayton, Randy joined Brady Ware in July of 1997. 
Randy, thanks so much for uh, taking your time out of uh, tax season to join us for a little bit today. Yeah, thank you, Mike. So um, I've kind of gone through your intro, but I don't think the intro necessarily does does it justice. So, you know, talk a little bit about your 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 role at, at Brady Ware and and you know how much how much forensic accounting and maybe chasing down white collar criminals is is a part of of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as Mike said, I am a director with the firm, and I do work out of our Dayton office. Uh, I do head up our fraud and forensic practice. And as part of that, um, I do spend a good portion of my time typically outside of, of our tax season, which is kind of our January through April time frame. But, but outside, that, outside of that uh, time frame, I spend a lot of time working with companies to primarily strengthen their internal controls. Um, I do get involved in cases where fraud has occurred, and I do have to go in and do investigations. What I try to do, because I see the ill impacts of that on businesses and, and how much it can destroy a company, is I really try to get out and get in front of these things and work with companies to help strengthen controls, reduce risk, and, and really find ways to, uh, to prevent fraud from happening in the first place. Because that's really where you want to be. You don't want to be on the receiving end of needing a forensic accountant, uh, which, of course, I can do. But you want to try to be on the front end of this and try to put preventive measures in place uh, to keep it from happening to begin with. Uh, because, unfortunately, uh, once it happens, uh, usually there's never a real good result. Yeah, once that bell gets rung, it's very hard to unring it. Um, Absolutely, and, and I, I, you know, I, I got to be candid. I did not know that about the forensic accounting role. I, I, I've worked in other other firms as well, and all they ever talked about was, you know, finding stolen money or dealing with lost profits and damages and so forth. But I, it, it had not occurred to me. But it makes sense now is that the other side of that is putting in internal controls and preventative measures so that. So that the other side of that identity that you have is, is we hope, you know, never called upon. Absolutely. And, you know, part of that is uh, bringing awareness to what the issue is, uh, because you don't know you need a forensic accountant until it happens to you typically. And so trying to educate people on the front end and, and show what some of the risk factors are and bringing awareness about it is part of the battle in trying to fight fraud. So companies can implement uh, risk management policies ahead of something happening. And I've even had cases where I've, I've gone out to do some of this uh, consulting and, and looking at kind of where their business risks are and, and where their controls are and how they're set up, where I've actually found fraud that has already occurred and the company was completely oblivious to it. I can imagine that led to some uncomfortable conversations. Yes, it, it did. Absolutely. So... Can anybody with a CPA do forensic accounting, or, or you know, what what is there specialized training to to become a specialist as you are in that particular field? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Mike. So, in addition to being a CPA, I'm also a CFE, which stands for Certified Fraud Examiner. So, when I originally got interested in fighting fraud and and getting into that aspect of my career. Um, I'd actually been involved on an engagement where uh, some employee embezzlement had happened, and I went in and was basically just trying to figure out what happened. It's like, you know, where the money was stolen from and the different ways that the individual was able to uh, steal the money, and it really just fascinated me. And so uh, 
I started looking at other ways to help sharpen my skills in that area because just with my auditing background, it really wasn't sufficient to really cover all the aspects that go into uh, being a forensic accountant and a certified fraud examiner. Uh, you need to understand some of the laws surrounding you know, how fraud is prosecuted. You need to understand what uh, some of the, uh, the things that lead people to commit fraud, what some of the, uh, those risk indicators are. And, and so I went ahead and uh, went to an organization called the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, became an associate member, and started looking at a lot of the, the classes and things that they offered in order to, uh, to become a certified fraud examiner. And as a result of that, uh, there's an examination I had to take and, and several classes, and, and I came out at the end of that and really started to make that part of my practice area. And uh, how long ago was that? Uh, I did that back in about 10 years ago. Okay, so, so you've had a decade, of, uh, a decade of experience in dealing with these kinds of issues. So, um, yes. D- does, does fraud, does all fraud look alike? Is there basically one f- flavor of fraud and fraud is just fraud or does, does, it, does it come in different forms and shapes? It really does come in different forms and different shapes. I mean, the term fraud can mean a number of different things. Um, you know, you can have uh, fraud in the medical industry where, you know, you have people submitting false uh, claims to insurance companies. And I, I mean, it just covers so many different things, tax fraud and, you know, refund fraud. Uh, it just, it's, it's huge. Uh, the area that I tend to focus on a little bit more uh, tends to deal with occupational fraud, which is one of the most common occurrences of fraud. Um, occupational fraud basically uh, deals with uh, employees, directors, uh, just individuals within a company that uh, commit fraud. And, and it can be fraud from, from any direction. Uh, typically, it, re- it relates to uh, like something around a cash disbursement or something like that uh, could be related to payroll. Um, th- there's just a number of different things where fraud can be committed against an organization, but it's typically asset misappropriation. So, and and that can take a number of different forms. So, what what are a couple of, of, of different forms? What are what are kind of the flavors of a, of asset misappropriation? And I guess to the to the uh, to the simple mind like mine, asset appropriation means the stealing stuff, right? Correct. So, uh, so one thing would be uh, cash disbursements fraud. So if somebody were to uh, write a check to themselves or to a fictitious organization that they controlled uh, that were, was an unauthorized disbursement, that would be an example of a cash disbursement fraud. Uh, another way that uh, another example of that would be if um, somebody paid themselves um, through payroll, either an extra paycheck, they modified their pay rate where they could be paid more money than what they were entitled to or what had been authorized and approved. Again, that's a an asset misappropriation because they're taking funds that are, have not been authorized to be taken. Another way could be inventory theft. Uh, you know, they just could actually just go in and take something right off the shelf uh, at a store or, you know, within the organization. There could be equipment, 
um, anything like that would relate to an asset misappropriation. And that's, again, the, probably the most common type of fraud that I tend to get involved with. You know, I, I was talking to somebody who does um, inventory tracking for hospitals uh, not long ago, and they've got a, they've got a company that, that facilitates that. And apparently one of the biggest, I don't know if you do any medical work or not, but one of the things that I learned is that um, you know, for a given hospital, hundreds of thousands of dollars of stuff just walks out of the hospital. It's not, it's not like bottles of aspirin either or stethoscopes. It's like, you know, significant equipment that just sort of goes missing. Yeah. Um, have you experienced that or heard of cases like that? Yeah, it, it does tend to happen in large medical facilities. I don't typically get involved with those as much. Um, most of them have been focused around companies where they've had an employee just internally, a lot of times involved with the accounting area where they've got access to those uh, funds in some way, shape, or form. It could be that they've, they're one of the authorized check signers. It could be that they are, um, or they have access to online banking and, you know, they wire money out of the account. Um, and so a lot of it's stuff that they can turn quickly into something that they can use. Um, don't see as much inventory theft, but it does happen because there's a market for those things. And, and most of those things can be easily sold and turned into cash. So with these people that, that, that commit fraud, I, I think the psychology here is interesting. I've had some experience with it just observing forensic accountants kind of across the hall in, in, in valuation in other places. Um, mm -hmm. What's the profile of the person who commits fraud? Are they somebody that's – they've already been out of jail three and four times, they're already kind of a known risk, or is it is it more somebody that, that – that may be the first crime they've ever committed, at least on record? Well, it can be both. Um, that's why if – companies are hiring individuals into a position of trust, it's really important to go through a very formalized and, uh, and very detailed background check to make sure that somebody that you've got coming in hasn't already served jail time, hasn't uh, you know, been arrested or anything else for one of these other crimes. So to answer your question on the other end, yes, it, it can happen to just about anybody, unfortunately. Um, Different circumstances come up in people's lives uh, that can give them the motivation that they would need to commit the fraud. Uh, there is a, there's what's called a fraud triangle that, that has the different aspects of fraud that lead somebody into committing fraud. And, you know, the first thing is motivation. And, you know, there's a number of things that can lead to, uh, some, you know, motivating somebody to commit fraud. It could be that they're living beyond their means and they need additional money to help support what they're spending. Uh, Might've had a medical incident or a loved one that, you know, was, you know, hurt in a car accident or they developed some disease where the medical bills just keep coming and they have to find a way to cover those bills. Uh, it could be just bad credit. Uh, they might've had a bankruptcy. They might've been divorced that just really threw their finances into turmoil. There's also things uh, like alcohol and drug abuse or gambling, um, just things like that where, you know, people have this additional need for funds that they're not able to get just from what they're earning uh, in their paychecks every week. So, you know, there's those types of things can motivate people to commit fraud initially. 
the second step is, you know, for them to justify it. Uh, you know, people will justify it in their heads by, you know, feeling that they are worth more than maybe what they're getting paid. Uh, if they see uh, maybe somebody else in the company that's making more money and there's maybe some jealousy there, they say, hey, wait a second, this person's making this much. I contribute more than what they do. I should be making more money. Um, so that, that's how they kind of justify it in their head. And the other thing is the opportunity. Uh, you know, the opportunity presents itself. It could be, you know, that there's a weakness in the control system that allows them to do it without it being detected. Um, and, and that's usually the big thing. And most people know their jobs very, very well. So they know what, what's looked at and they know uh, if they try something, whether or not they would get caught or not. And so it might start out as, hey, I just took a little bit here or there and nobody said anything, nothing ever comes up about it. And so it starts going further and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it can just snowball uh, into something very, very large. So, all right. So now I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this, this podcast and as a listener now, I'm, 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 a, I'm afraid. Um, somebody's stealing money, somebody's taking money out of the till, writing fake invoices, walking out with laptops, whatever, whatever it is. Um, mm -hmm. As as a business owner, how can I keep my eye out for warning signs that fraud might be going on? Are there any kind of telltale symptoms that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So what, one of the things uh, business owners definitely need to be in tune with is, you know, what their employees have access to and, you know, looking for changes uh, in their employees' behavior, lifestyle, things like that. So if if I'm a business owner and I know that I'm paying my uh, accounts payable person, let's just say $50,000 a year, and they drive up in a you know $100,000 Mercedes car, that might be a red light that goes on to say, you know what, something doesn't look right there. Um, and there, there could be a very good reason for that. However, it's those kind of things that you just need to be aware of and aware of, you know, changes to your employees. If you see them, uh, you know, a behavior change or you see physical symptoms of something that, that don't look right, that should be something that you would look at and, and maybe say, you know what, I, I should probably look a little bit more into that. Um, another sign would be if you are having unexpected cash flow issues uh, that just don't make sense. I mean, you know, you know, your sales are up from what they were last year and you would think your profitability is up, but you know, you can't meet payroll for some reason. You're like, wait a second, why don't we have enough money in the bank to make payroll or why can't we pay our vendors on time? Um, and it just doesn't make sense to you or you see just unexpected financial trends in your financial statements that don't make a lot of sense. That's when, you know, there could be a sign there that something's going on and you need to to look into it and investigate it. You know, when you, when you describe that, it, it sounds to me like financial fraud looks an awful lot like data breaches in, in that the data breach is rarely, if ever, a one-time occurrence. Or, or, and, and the one you hear about, or by the time you hear about it, it's really not one incident, but it, it's, it's likely something that has gone on sort of in a, in a low-key hard to detect way over an extended period of time. D does fraud mm -hmm. often act like that as well? You wind up being the, 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 the boiling frog and you don't realize it until you, you're not a live frog anymore. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the sad part is a lot of times when fraud occurs, it's people who, you know, the owners trust and a, and a lot of times have been with the company for a long time. And again, it starts out small. You know, it's, hey, I, I did a little bit here, and a little bit there, and nobody noticed, nobody said anything, and I figured out, hey, I can exploit this a little bit more, and I find different ways to do it, and it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and, you know, by the time you get to it, and sometimes it goes, you know, I had one case that had gone on for 20 years, and Whoa. they had no clue what was going on, and it, you know, on an annual basis, if you look at it, it's like, okay, well, it wasn't enough to really, you know, damage the company in any way. But in the aggregate, if you look at, say, it's $100,000 over 20 years, that's a lot of money, you know, that the company has lost uh, to fraud. And it was all because it was this person that was in a trusted position of authority within the organization that exploited a weakness that was there. Yeah, and it's just, you know, you're right. And then you think on top of that, if that $100,000 had been reinvested in the company or reinvested elsewhere, there's a multiplier effect, too, of lost of lost returns. Absolutely. So in your experience, is, is fraud more likely to come from the top part of the organization, say at the CFO controller level, or in middle management, or kind of down on the shop floor cash register level, rank and files, are more places where it's more likely to occur or does it kind of occur all over the place? It can really happen anywhere. Um, the larger frauds tend to happen at the higher levels of the organization. So if you have, like say, a chief financial officer that has access and the ability to cover up a fraud uh, for an extended period of time, uh, those can get very, very large. Unfortunately, you know, if you have somebody on the shop floor that's stealing from you and they're stealing scrap metal or, you know, parts or something and they're selling them in the black market. Yeah, I mean, you're probably not going to notice any major financial impacts from that, but it's still going to be impactful because, you know, you're you're missing inventory. Uh, you know, you're not getting the money back from that scrap and, and things like that. So, yeah, but it can happen all over. Now, a, a lot of... Uh you know, a lot of companies, of course, are subject to formal financial statement audits, according to GAAP. Um, is it reasonable to expect that over the course of the audit that fraud will just be detected over the due course of, your, of, your, of a well-performed financial audit? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not likely uh, that a normal financial statement audit is going to detect most types of fraud. Um, audits are just not designed to detect fraud. I mean, there are aspects of the, the audit that will, you know, get an understanding of how the controls and things are set up. And if they see uh, a glaring weakness in the control system, they should be designing their audit procedures around that to detect something. However, um, some of these things are so well hidden and they're not large enough to really be caught in a financial audit. Um, most of them aren't. I mean, you have a very small percentage of them that would potentially get caught by a financial statement audit, but a forensic uh, accounting engagement or audit really will dive deep into the specific areas where there is risk um, after an analysis is done. And so, uh, yeah, it just unfortunately doesn't. And a lot of people think that because, hey, I have an audit done, I should be really good and I don't have to worry about fraud occurring. That's just not the case. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And my recollection is if, if you carefully read a standard financial audit engagement letter, there is a, there's typically language that says, you know, we're not necessarily going to detect fraud. That's a separate exercise. If we stumble upon it, great. But, you know, don't rely upon this exclusively to find that kind of, that kind of issue. That is correct. So, okay. So let's, let's say now that, um, uh, you know, I'm a business owner. I commission a fraud engagement, and I find something. What typically happens then? Does, do you call the cops and they just sort of you know cuff the person? They walk them out of the walk them out of the store, or what? What happens then? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to vary depending on what type of fraud it is. I mean, obviously. If it's something very egregious and somebody is continuing to do it, and if you don't get them removed immediately, further damage is going to occur to the company, then, yeah, you're going to want to take some immediate steps to get that person out of the, their ability to do that. However, most cases, if you, know, if you hired somebody to come in and kind of do a fraud checkup, that's kind of what I'll call it, and they happen to discover a fraud, uh, first thing you should really do is is get an attorney involved that has got uh, experience in dealing with these kind of matters. And, you know, you need to look specifically for an attorney that has experience dealing with fraud situations because there are various uh, federal and state laws that cover fraud. Now, again, if it's somebody that, you know, you found stealing money out of the till, obviously you get them out of there immediately because you don't want to continue to incur losses as a result of them taking that or, you know, steal an inventory out of the back room or something like that. But this is really more for, you know, having somebody that's in a position of trust that might be, you know, stealing through the payroll system or the, um, you know, cash disbursements and things like that, that I described a little bit ago, you really want to have somebody get involved that knows, you know, the different areas that, that can be attacked to try to recover the funds because obviously the end result is you want to try to recover as much as you possibly can. Um, unfortunately with most frauds, the people have spent the money already. And so you have to have other ways to try to collect, uh, and attorneys know how to go about doing that. Um, and so you definitely want to get them involved on the front end. Yeah. I've noticed that that's very unfortunate about the people that commit fraud. They're, they're not, they're not very good savers and investors. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, <laughs> no, they they've aren't, never invested it into a wise portfolio of a diversified of stock and bonds and have real estate and stuff. <laughs> they've bought a Tesla or they paid for a cruise to Easter Island or they bought like yes. a solid gold trailer or something, something like that. It's, it's, it's rarely something you can just say, well, I'll just write you a check and pay you back and off you go. Um, yeah, first class plane tickets uh, for a trip to Europe. I mean, th- those are the kind of things that typically the money's spent on. Uh, it's yeah, it's kind of interesting the psychology. So, um, and I would imagine that that attorney that you call, or maybe it's more than one attorney, because I got to imagine there's employment issue too. If if you accuse somebody of fraud, and then you're going to fire somebody from for cause, you better be right, <laughs> or you're in a world of hurt yourself, right? Yep, absolutely. That's why you really want to try to get those attorneys involved quickly uh, to mitigate risk to the company and any potential additional losses. Now, what if I suspect fraud, I bring you in, and you come back and you say, you know what, all this stuff is explainable. I mean, yeah, you ought to, you ought to 
uh, you ought to improve some processes and some transparency, but it doesn't look like anybody stole anything. Mm-hmm. You know, is there a risk of fallout within the organization after after you've done that? Have you kind of hit the nuclear button and then you've got other organizational problems to solve? Or can you do that in a way that's discreetly so you can kind of get in and out and very few people know you're, you're even ever doing that or suspecting anybody of fraud? Yeah, no, Mike, that's a great question. And it's something that we run into a lot, especially when uh, the owner wants to just kind of have a checkup done. Come in and kick the tires and see how see how the controls are set up. And, and if you find something, let's talk about it. You know, that's how a lot of the engagements go. So um, if you've got somebody that is uh, that's good at, you know, working with employees and, you know, the the narrative comes out as to why, you know, somebody's there and somebody's asking questions and looking at some different things. You can definitely uh, get around some of those concerns of, you know, having the organization uh, just have major shakeup because, you know, somebody's in here investigating a fraud or something like that. So there are definite, you know, ways that you can go about that to, to mitigate that with, you know, employees and, and personnel within your organization. Uh, you just have to make sure that you have the right person to, to kind of talk through what your your narrative is around it. Uh, so a lot of times it can be, hey, what you know we're we're looking to, you know, redo our insurance policy, and they want us to look at some of our our controls and policies and things like that. You know, it could be that hey, this is done in conjunction with our, you know, urine audit, and they're doing some some other uh, steps to look at some different things. I mean, there's a number of ways you can go about it um, to help mitigate any of that fallout. Now, are there certain kind of businesses that are more vulnerable or less vulnerable to fraud than others? You know, Mike, just about every business could be susceptible to fraud. Now, if you do everything in your company and you write all your checks, you take care of all the accounting, you ship all your merchandise out, you have nobody else involved in it, and you're kind of a one-man shop, you probably don't have to worry about too much fraud occurring within your organization. But as soon as you bring on somebody else, even if you're a pretty small company, you, you're, you have susceptibility. And, you know, unfortunately for smaller companies, um, they tend to have larger frauds occur because they do have, you know, maybe one person doing a lot of the, the different jobs that, you know, typically in larger organizations, they can move around to different people to help, you know, increase the, the control uh, the controls around a lot of those key areas to try to mitigate fraud risk. Um, but even with a small company, there are some very, very practical things uh, that business owners can do to help mitigate the risk. And, you know, there's a couple more things that might have to be added to their plate or even other employees' plates, but it, it's very easy to do without adding additional cost or headcounts uh, into even small organizations to help um, really mitigate fraud risk. Well, that, that, that's a great entree then because I, I'm sure you know, our listeners would, would like to understand, you know, is there, a, is there a short kind of punch list of things that owners can, can do fairly easily to redu- reduce their exposure to fraud? Yeah, I would say that there's definitely some things that they can do. I mean, where you see fraud that has gone rampant, it's typically because there's very little oversight by the owner on any of the financial records. And, and it does happen a lot in small businesses. You have a business owner that 
is out trying to do sales, is out, you know, trying to make sure that if it's a manufacturing, that all the products getting where it needs to go, even if it's a distribution that they're managing, you know, shipping and all those other different things. And the last thing that they want to have to worry about is, okay, who's paying the bills and did we get all the, you know, the money collected from our customers and, and things like that. But when there's no oversight there at all, that's where the risk exponentially increases. And so, um, yes, there are definite things that, you know, business owners can do that would help mitigate that risk. And, and again, it's not a lot of additional time that they would have to spend in it. Um, but some very simple things that, that, you know, you could go through and, and it really just depends on each business. So it, it can't just be some blanket thing that, okay, well, yeah, if everybody does this, that's going to, you know, reduce your risk for fraud. Yeah. There probably are a couple general things that, that you could do, but, but each company is just going to be real different because, you know, they're going to have different levels of employees, different levels of knowledge, um, you know, different facets within their business where, you know, they've got risk of, you know, for fraud to occur. So really needs to kind of be specific to each company when you look at it. Right. Because the nature of the fraud that can occur is going to be different from a, a burger restaurant to, say, an auto dealership. Absolutely. Okay. So we, we've covered a lot of ground today. We, we probably could could cover a, a lot more, but um, uh, <laughs> yeah. t- time is finite. So um, if somebody wants to contact you for more information, you know, c- can they do so? And, and if so, uh, how, how can they find you? Absolutely. The best way to contact me is probably through email. My email address is rdomigan at bradyware.com, and it's R-D-O-M as in Mary, I-G-A-N as in Nancy, at bradyware.com. Uh, you can also contact me at my Dayton office. The number is 1-800-893-4283. Or you can visit our website at www.bradyware.com. And you can go through the services link. You can find um, fraud there. And there will be a link directly to me on that website as well. All right. Very good. Well, um, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Randy Domigan of Bradyware so much for joining us and sharing his expertise. Um, we'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.